Hello everyone, welcome back to It's a Wonderful Podcast for what feels like a very significant episode, Janine. It always feels like a significant episode when this particular gentleman is in conversation on this show. I always love covering his movies and this is a really big major one we are talking about today. It is Sydney Poitier week on It's a Wonderful Podcast. We covered 1992's Sneakers on Morgan Hasn't Seen, seeing Poitier in a slightly older role there, or at least him in his older years, alongside Robert Redford and a bunch of other people in that strange hacking movie <laughs> from the early 90s. But we are in... Well, has he reached his prime quite yet? It's certainly the decade where you would say Sidney Poitier was at the absolute peak of his powers. And he starts the 60s with this movie, transferred from its Broadway play, of which pretty much everyone in this cast reprised their roles from stage to screen but it is an absolute acting powerhouse, this movie. A fascinating one, at times emotionally draining. You become so yes. <laughs> invested in what's going on. You feel like you are living alongside the youngers in their tiny little cramped Chicago apartment because we're talking a raisin in the sun today, Janine, from 1961. Does it feel like as significant an episode to you as it does to me? Uh, most definitely. I mean, Sydney is a huge staple of this channel. For me in particular, uh, growing up, my mom would show me older films. Uh, and so there was a handful that I was aware of before doing this show. And one of them was To Sir With Love. That was the first time I saw Sidney Poitier in anything and was just so impressed by him. And then over the years, learning about his impact and him being able to be such a star and not kind of submit to things that, you know, we see illustrated in movies like Hollywood Shuffle, where Black actors get pigeonholed into these roles of, of kind of negative depictions. And he you know, always kind of tried to transcend that when he could and, and became kind of this icon because he was, you know, such a, had such a commanding presence and, um, you know, very kind of classy and sophisticated and, and depicted Black characters in such a powerful and accessible way. And uh, so I've always loved Sidney Poitier and what he means to, film particularly at this time so um to see him in this role doing something that i feel like i've never seen him do and play a character i've never seen him play um you know with this type of personality was really exciting so i, I was definitely um looking forward to seeing his performance in this movie Yes, very exciting, very intriguing. There are plenty of flaws about Mr. Walter Lee Younger, who Sidney yeah. Poitier is playing in A Raisin in the Sun, which is so unlike your typical Sidney Poitier characters, even when there is an edge to them, 
a, a slightly angry side to them. I'm thinking of something like the Defiant, Defiant ones, ones or Black yeah. or Jungle, mm -hmm. or something like that. Of course, they came in the 50s. But I'm also reminded with what you said there about him never being pigeonholed into stereotyping or anything like that. And that starts from his very, very first movie, which was No Way Out, no way out in yeah. 1950, which we have covered on the show. We've covered, I think, well, certainly over 20 years of Sidney Poitier on this particular show, from No Way Out to Book and the Preacher, I think, is the yeah. latest Poitier movie we've covered on this particular show. Not including sneakers, of course, which we yes. <laughs> talk about on Wednesdays, Morgan hasn't seen. But it is really, really fascinating to, to think that going through the 50s, the 60s in particular, being at the height of his powers, that he was so enormously popular, this transcendent star, and with all this star power that he very much had in such a tumultuous race. civil time, uh, yeah. Yeah. A, a time for, for race relations in the US. It's it's staggering to think of the 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 impact that he had at that time and the legacy he continues to have because of that. Yes, all the other stuff he did, but it is because of the class he brought to his roles, the real intelligence, the distinguished nature he brought yeah. to his <laughs> roles. While realising the importance of what he was doing, I don't think that was ever alien to him, was it? He always realised the great importance of what he was doing, which is why I think this movie and this idea, this play, I suppose, originally, is doubly more interesting because it's so strikingly true to life. It wants yeah. to be absolutely as down to earth and showing all the grit all the grime all the nasty little feuds that families have in the tightest most kind of unpleasant living conditions really cramped together really yeah. intense on top of each other that we are just not used to seeing from him and he is playing such a deeply flawed character who ultimately the lead character i mean if you want to say lena the mother is the lead character of this movie okay, in this yeah. play i think that's a reasonable thing to say as well but <clears throat> given that this movie is billed with Sidney poitier's name above the title i would say it wants to be Sidney's movie yeah. it wants to emphasize Sydney more than anybody else and i think it ultimately does do that but the emotional strain i think it puts on us watching it puts on all the characters and the absolute roller coaster of a journey you end up going on with really these four central characters um is just so moving i think and because it's predominantly this one room or at least one location setting it just it does a really good job of kind of weaving you around the apartment i think even just from the movie making 
Um, I feel like it's kind of invisible movie making to a certain degree, which yeah. takes a lot of skill in <laughs> itself to to actually not draw attention to uh, to the intricacies of how the film is made because it is really there to show the the powerhouse performances that we are being delivered from all four sides of that central yes. family square which is which is i think for me is what makes it not feel so stagey or so much like an adapt adaptation of a, a stage play because i think a lot of movies that are adapted from a stage play feel very much that um I, like the first thing that comes to mind is fences fences felt very much like a stage play like when i was watching the film version of it um but this film even though it was set in locate in one location, even though I was fully aware that it was an adaptation of, of something from the stage, the performances didn't feel like that. And like you said, I think also I, which I didn't even realize until you said that, um, the direction of how we kind of move around the space. Sometimes we're, uh, you know, from the vantage point of being in the kitchen, looking towards the living room area. Sometimes we're in the vantage point of being uh, in the living room area, looking towards the front door and the, and the kitchen, you know, sometimes. So we're angled in all different directions of the room. Yeah, but so it's it never feels... static either. No, it's always no. kind of sweeping around, really making you feel like you're right there living in this kind of cramped them. space. Yes. And I think they need that to kind of illustrate the kind of bo boiling point and building frustration between these characters, just so cramped up, cooped up together, stressed about money, stressed about, you know, where they're going in their lives, constantly being together with each other's uh, very different ideas of, you know, this, this big chunk of money that they're getting and what they want to do with it. And, you know, who has a claim on that money and all of these things you feel the crampedness being able to kind of move around the space and see where you are whereas if you were watching it on the stage you would kind of just be from the same angle every time um yeah so i think being able to move around the space like that and give you shots from different angles of this one space makes it feel more cinematic as opposed to theatrical which i really enjoyed yeah and i, I think I, I do, I agree with you. I think you need that. It really does a great job of feeling intimate. You feel like you're right up close to the characters. Yeah. And I don't think you do get that in any stage play. I think any stage play is quite observing. You know, it, it's not voyeuristic. That's a kind of little bit more intense way of saying it. But yeah. you're always observing something from the outside. In, in, yeah. And this movie the way it's put together and the way it's performed in front of you makes you feel like you're, you're you are right there sitting the at the table yeah. mm -hmm. you know it, it really really does it it does a great great job of doing that before we get into all the little details of just how great a raisin in the sun is janine we do have to say a big thank you to all our it's a wonderful podcast patrons we love them dearly we like to say thank you to them every single week on an episode of one of the shows. We can't do what we do without the generous support of them. So if you would like to join them and join us over there, there is a link in the description for the Patreon, as well as a donation link if you are if you want to support us in that way. 
as well. We would love you forever, much like we love and yes. want to say thank you to Marie Zambino. And thank you, Adam Witt. Thank you to Michael Smith. Thank you, Amber Coates. Thank you, Abby Freel. Thank you, Ferris Muthana. Thank you to 90s Comics Box, Janine's big brother, Justin. Thank you, Video Drew. Thank you to Tina Farrell. Thank you, Marcus Burton. Thank you to Steve, Movie Finobi. Thank you, Samir Testify. Thank you to Patrick Harden. Thank you, Carla Fies. Thank you to the great Ken Napsock. Thank you to our good friends Tom and Kimber of Odd Shape Channel. Thank you to Eric Garcia. And thank you to Billy Pollahan. Yes, applause for the patrons, <clears throat> applause for the movie. Janine, how intense does this make you feel? Uh, very. Uh, just like I said, there's a boiling point element uh, to these characters. Uh, you see uh, Ruby D kind of just already waking up, feeling frustrated. And, uh, you know, you there were elements of kind of her beginning interaction with Sidney Poitier's character that was like I was almost allowing myself to feel how I felt for Burt Lancaster's character uh, that we talked about in Sorry, Wrong Number. A man who has okay. a dream and feeling like, you know, his partner is not supporting him in that or encouraging him in that. But then, you know, as he continues to kind of lament the life that he has and lament her for, you know, just telling him to shut up and eat his eggs and leave her alone while he's talking about all these big dreams he has, you kind of realize it's not that. It's not a no. man who wants to make something of himself and is trying to make something of himself but doesn't have the support of his partner. This is a man who just complains about this all the time but doesn't do anything or expects a handout to do it. Um and, and comes from a very selfish perspective and doesn't really see what she is doing every day to, to keep things kind of running and going. Uh, yeah, so I then, think that's the know, main thing. Yeah. By all means, you know, we can allow Walter Lee to be a dreamer that he is of in course. this movie. Yeah. I, the, the, the movie never wants him to not be that. It always understands him as the way he is tells him off when he makes some serious mistakes yeah. but he always understands him and the family continues to love him even when he does make those really really grave errors towards yeah. the end of the movie but it is that selfish attitude that yeah. he does have the very single-minded attitude that he does have that makes me feel so sorry for Ruby D constantly throughout this movie. I want the best for Ruby D in this movie. And she she's never getting it up until, you know, it, it ultimately it ends in a somewhat positive way, this movie. Yeah. Or at least it ends in a very proud, like pleasant yes, way. Yes. But there's so much strife before that. And it's not not in the same way that something like, for some reason, this comes into my head, it's a wonderful life. It's not depression, 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 elation that that kind of movie is. It's more up, down, up, down, up, down, really down, and then up, back, yeah. back mm -hmm. up at the end. Um, but Ruby D just gives this 
real downtrodden performance in this movie. She looks yeah. so tired constantly. She looks beaten down yeah. and just worked to the bone. Yet she's saying in this movie that she'll work more and more if she has to, if it means that the family can survive as, as they deserve get, too yes and ele elevate and, and get out of this cramped space and be in an open place and just you know have a better uh position and station in life she'll work as hard as she needs to work so it's not about the toiling away or the working it's about you know toiling away and working and feeling like you're not getting anywhere she'll work yeah. as hard as she needs to work if she feels like it's accomplishing something for her and her family and getting them somewhere and elevating them you know to a higher level but to do all of this work and you feel like you're stuck still stuck in the same place it is what is really just bringing her down in i mean everybody everybody oh. is a flawed character in this movie yes. to a certain degree because I think even there, there, there's times when Ruby D, Ruth in this movie, isn't seeing other people's perspectives and is just looking at her. There, there's a selfish attitude mm -hmm. to all four of our main characters in the movie. But I definitely think that Ruth comes across as the most sympathetic. I think, yeah. or at least to me, She's the she's the one out of all four of them that I I want to I want to get behind yeah. the most because she just seems a bit purer. She's just she's there for the family. Like even Lena, the mother, who is totally there for the family, is is a very kind of strict. She's an old fashioned woman. She's very religious. Very, very very religious not that that's an issue but she's very unwilling a lot to hear anybody else's perspective on things at any yeah. time particularly walter lee's sydney poitiers which yes. causes so much intensity between but, the two of them but by the end I, I think near the end she does kind of see that she 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 does have a bit of an arc and a growth with that where she 100%. is trying to see that perspective in this really great explanation she gives that is the perfect description of unconditional love um yeah so i think i think she ultimately does come around and i think just where her religious aspect kind of comes into uh her really not understanding her children i think benita really comes with a great explanation as to maybe why she's not so religious and why um you know she has this understanding of well i don't believe in a higher power or god because of this and this and this and like she really brings up some interesting points with that but yeah her mother her mother can't respect her daughter's perspective and immediately just kind of sees it as blasphemy and slaps her daughter and tells her in this house you have to believe such and such thing instead of just letting her believe what she wants to believe you know yeah, and, and and you believe is, what you want to believe ultimately a, a grown adult woman diana sands <laughs> is playing beneath it's claudia mcneil playing lena all again taken from the broadway the original broadway yeah. production of this movie which has an interesting history itself i mean it, it's notable for being I think the first play by a black woman ever on Broadway. Mm -hmm. um, 
Lorraine Hansbury wrote the play and and this movie adapted this movie from her own play um it's no, it's notable for being you know very distinct at that time for ultimately being a black play it, yeah. and put that on the screen as well it becomes doubly more impactful because it's then a far wider audience that sees yeah. this kind of thing that can understand this kind of thing and it being written and performed as well as it is the characterization of everybody is so deeply layered and deeply human because you like all four of them and you dislike all four of them you understand all four of them and you really don't understand all four of them yeah. at different times as we move through this story and this kind of week i guess together maybe it's a week it's not quite clear i guess how long you, you, a time yeah, has passed is uh, is spanning in this movie but it is from a character standpoint such an impressive feat to make us feel all these complete binary opposite emotions about the same people over the course of two hours it's it's a stunning feat and this movie absolutely nails that and it could be with any four characters you know th that idea could be done with any four characters what makes it even more impressive is the fact that it's a black movie at yeah. the time <clears throat> that has that added layer on it this isn't a cramped lower class white family that is maybe more palatable to the u.s movie going audience in the early 60s no you're you're seeing or, or at least white people are seeing yeah a, a different side to life entirely in this movie yeah and it, it it opens those doors and it opens those parts of your mind that you can recognize that oh yeah you know i i understand my own perspective but this is something totally ultimately other to me yeah and how it's able to do that without ever not that it not that it wants to beat you over the head i'm not i'm not saying that <laughs> yeah yeah but it, it's it's done in such a way that ultimately the the fact that we're dealing with a black family is so important but it isn't the ideas behind it all aren't exclusively black, black. if you, if you no. understand what i'm trying to say no i guess i and i feel like them being black doesn't really factor into any particular strong plot element until the very end um until kind of that last portion of the film uh it, it's it's like you said this insight on another side of life that maybe people don't consider or look at um and they just happen to be a, a black family so yes well, that, I, that I don't consider and look at i'm sure there's <laughs> many other people yes, perhaps yourself you. included janine yes. that views yes. this movie in a different way <clears throat> to me 
Um, well, even I was not really inherently kind of att attributing any of their issues or problems uh, that we see in kind of the early half of the film to them being black or their struggle being because they were black. Um, it wasn't until that actually became a, a factor for, you know, their ultimate future that I was really even conscious or thinking about it. Uh, so I like that this film chooses not to kind of harp on that or make it uh, this big crux of, you know, the life that they live until it really serves the story and ultimately shows you kind of what these people are made of by the end of, of the film. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, it's kind of driven by ultimately when getting into the story is this family, you know, they all live in this uh, apartment kind of cramped together. And I love the just subtle visual um, cues that give us a, a clue as to, you know, the cramped space, the frustrations with the living quarters. We open with, uh, you know, Ruby D having to wake up. She's trying to wake up her husband. She wakes up her son who's sleeping on the couch because he doesn't have a room. Uh, there's a rush to get him to use the, the kind of community apartment bathroom that everyone in the apartment has to use. And so you, ne you need to get in there. Uh, otherwise you're going to be late if somebody is in there too long. So just all of these visual illustrations of uh, the struggle of, of just living in this cramped place with all of these people and, and, and Ruby D's old morning. You feel like this is what she has to do every day, every morning, mm. get everybody up, start making food, uh, you know, having to hear her husband harp on about what's wrong with his life and not even really thinking about what she goes through and what she has to do. Um, you know, her son reaching his hand out to her and her not being able to provide. And then her father kind of coming, his father coming in and making her look bad, giving him whatever he wants. And, you know, yeah. uh, and, and, and so you just get this really well done illustration of life with them. And, and you get kind of the building frustrations of characters are having just from this opening. Um, and, and they're all this, uh, there's this looming element of them all waiting for, uh, the mother's uh, insurance check that she's going to get from the death of her husband. So they're waiting for this big $10,000 check. And, you know, Sidney Poitier, he's Walter. He's very much, I'm, I, I, you know, I can invest this money in getting a liquor license. And me and my friends are going to have our own business and sell liquor and make all this money. Um, uh, Ruby D, you know, she, she, you know, has thoughts of, of what she would want with this money, but she's really kind of, not trying to put anything about her on it because she's aware, no, this is the mother's check. I'm not going to, I would love for her to do this and this and that and the other thing, but this is her money. Um, Beneath yeah. is also kind of the same way. She's like, this is mom's money. She's going to do with it what she wants to do with it. And <clears throat> so the women have a more kind of clear perspective of what this money is and who it belongs to. Whereas Walter, he's just very much selfish about it, but they're all, I mean, they're all anticipating its arrival and 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 anticipating to see what uh lena the mother is going to do with it so this is where we yeah. kind of meet these people yeah and there's far more of a constant obsession from walter about the money itself like even lena who is the owner of the money the money is hers doesn't yeah. care half as much as walter does about the money and it almost has to be slapped out of Walter to not think about money 
so much. And I think this is ultimately where we end the movie. I do not think he will go on living his life after this movie ends thinking so much about money because of exactly what happens in the movie. Yeah. I think he will he will grow to realize there are far bigger things and far more meaningful things in, in <clears throat> life than money. I think that's a great constant theme of yeah. this movie is the importance of other things, the family, love, your children, your pride in who you are in yourself, your yeah. race, rather than money. You know, yeah. all that sort of stuff is far more important. I, I love that attitude that the that the movie does give because you that, know yeah. we, we start the movie feeling the complete opposite. Everybody's obsessed with this ten thousand dollar check and what's going to happen with yeah. it, even if they don't necessarily want it themselves. But both of Lena's children are dreamers, you know, beneath her wants to be a doctor she's studying at school to be a doctor she's younger than than sydney poitier i think she's probably in her early 20s i yeah. mean walter lee's <coughs> constantly going on about how he's 35 years old and has nothing and my son has yes. to sleep on the couch because i can't provide for him what am i going to do punch myself in the face because we'll go to the bar every night and drink yeah yeah metaphorically sydney poitier is just punching himself in the face at in every turn he's, yeah he's so self-destructive it pains me to watch a poitier performance that is so self-destructive yes because we're so not used to seeing him that way he's always put together no. and determined and, and 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 prideful and you know confident and you know even when he has a doubtful moment he, he still you know composes himself and thinks things through and you know always wants to be just and true and so this version you know this character is very out of pocket out of out of you know the familiarity that we're, we're used to seeing him so um it, it's definitely interesting just to see him be this uh, frustrating person <laughs> it is but there is there is such a large part of me that after watching this movie is thinking this this is his best performance isn't it this is certainly yes. the best performance that i have seen him give like surely this is his best performance yeah. he's it's been going on in my head over and over and yeah. over again and the amount of Poitier movies we have covered on this show every single time i go oh he's so good in the right? movie yeah because he always, he always always is but i just think because of the nature of this character and he's still giving 150% of gravitas to the role yeah. of just absolutely going all in mm -hmm. on any given emotion without making it feel over the top and theatrical like you talked about before, still making it feel quiet and yes. personal and intimate. Yet perhaps there's something within me that beats myself down that enjoys seeing somebody i've always seen <laughs> as such a put together figure actually so broken at times down like this. beat themselves down yeah. and come out of it at the end i i, I think yeah. i i had a certain 
a certain identifiable quality. Not to not to not to not to this dramatic of an extent, but perhaps to the mindset, perhaps to yes, the no, nature I, I, of the human being that he is in this movie. Yes. I mean, when you say that, I it's it, it it you know reminds me that I know you to be a very kind of empath kind of person in that way. Yeah. And something somebody does that seemingly kind of feels out of pocket you appreciate because you can relate to that in some way <laughs> it very much yeah. takes me back to a gift i gave you one birthday where i got you a cameo from uh the actor who plays victor <laughs> crumb and he was very awkward and just kind of was a very weird cameo like he didn't know what to do and he didn't really know what to say and it was so awkward and I was like, oh, Morgan's going to hate this. He's being so weird and uncomfortable in this video. Like, he just doesn't know what to do. And you loved it because he, you know, he's seemingly like this famous person in this huge, from this huge movie. But he was so just average person awkward that you yeah. were you appreciated that about him and you saw something in yourself in him that you know if i have awkward moments just like this guy's having an awkward moment right in front of my eyes and it just made you appreciate it and all that more so it I really does it always does that i look yeah. i did not think that uh, victor crumb or stan yanevsky would be involved in our discussion on raising the sun <laughs> i didn't but... think so either but when you said how you could relate to the kind of very broken parts and and the kind of person that he's in this movie beating himself down and you could completely relate to that uh you know sad part of this person it just made me think of how you were so happy by something i thought you weren't gonna like because you found an interesting way that it related to you and and how you feel about things and how you live your life and how you know you know so. You are you are entirely <laughs> right though. I, I I do I do find more appreciation when these semi-mythical figures that a suited and booted distinguished Sydney Poitier mm -hmm. kind of is when they become more human in my eyes yeah. or in, in the eyes of the movie going world, for example. I, I, I really do have an appreciation for that because that connection you can you then have to any given performer, I think is just amplified by that. And I, yeah. I I love it for that. This, you know, I loved Sidney Poitier and his movies before this movie, but that has gone up a hundred percent after watching this movie simply because of the role that it is and what he was able to do with it and no this is not just sydney poitier's movie it no. isn't it just happens to be sydney poitier week on it's a wonderful podcast and we just so happen to frequently talk about his movies and like we've said he is ultimately the lead of this movie so it, it kind of makes sense for us to somewhat focus our discussion more on him but oh my god are the women phenomenal Yes, yes. Stunningly so. I just don't have too much comparative material to go off. Ruby D somewhat a couple of things here and there. I mean, she does kind of like playing Sydney's wife, Buck and the Preacher. She was his wife 
yeah. in that. Uh, there's definitely another movie, which I think was is she... earlier than this. Was she in No Way Out? No, she wasn't. I wish she might have been in No Way Out, but I don't think... No, I think she was probably too young for No Way Out. I'm trying I don't to... remember. Maybe it's just because definitely Austin another was in it, and I, th- I always think of them together. Ossie Davis was in it, yes. <laughs> well, they are, but they, naturally, you think of Ossie Davis and Ruby Dee together. That yeah. only makes perfect sense. Yeah. I was quite surprised to not see him in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> It would have made. I think it would have made perfect sense to see yeah. him in this movie, but uh, no, he isn't. I mean, we do have a, a couple of interesting romantic supporting characters for Benita in yes. this movie that I find um, unusual in their own ways. Particularly one of them, uh, Louis Gossett Jr., very young Louis Gossett yes. Jr., still with a weekly receding hairline. And he looks like he's about 45 in the movie yeah, already. Yeah. And this is 1961. He's definitely not 45 years old in this yeah. movie, but he just looks it. He is a well-to-do man, um, a, a, an educated him. man who is is trying to, yeah, trying to court beneath him as you as you nicely put it there she 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 she's not altogether interested in him she sees him as a bit stuck up a bit too yes. pretentious as does everybody else and then yeah. sydney poitier uh, calls him a slur which isn't nice or at least has some sort of oh, yes. very derogatory comment to make about his shoes shoes yeah mm-hmm. which i was quite struck by but then yes. again you, you know the 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 nasty language is there to be used for impact. Yes, which it 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 did impact. It certainly, did. it certainly <laughs> did in, in that particular scene. Yeah. I don't want to be hearing such words come out of Sydney Poitier, but so unpleasantness. Yes. Um. Basically, he makes fun of Louis Gossett Jr.'s shoes yes. and likens them to being homosexual. Basically, yes. He he throws an F slur out there, which was very he like, does. no, Sydney, no, you know, top like that. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> you, you do think that at that particular time. He says it twice as well. Yes! Not, he doesn't just say it For once. Emphasis. He comes out with it yeah, twice. Yeah. Um, and Ivan Dixon, who is playing a Nigerian man in the movie, Joseph Asagai, who Benita is very taken with, really. She, she almost becomes a tiny bit obsessed with her African heritage yes. in the movie to, to a little bit of you know side eyes from the rest of her family yeah uh, when she starts putting on traditional headwear and listening <laughs> An african to garb Af- and listening to drum yes. drumming records of listening african drums and, music yes and, and spouting kind of all of these words of uh you know in african and things like that um, she, I, I like that they depict her youth in her being kind of this very flighty character. Um, mm. you know, they show that she's very much experimental in, in her expression and, uh. She gets laughed at for that by her yes. grandmother and I don't <laughs> yes. like that lean. Yes. <laughs> Uh, and Ruby D as well. Her sister-in-law also kind of laughs at her. Because, or a mother, not a grandmother. Yes. Yes. She, uh, you know, wanted to try horseback riding and then she's doing guitar lessons and photography and she's trying all these different things. And so the family's just very much like, oh my gosh, Benita, 
you were just like doing all kinds of random stuff and not sticking with anything. So it's very difficult for them to take her seriously, but they managed to, to, you know, show us that the doctor aspect of what she's doing and going to school is a consistent thing is, is constant. Whereas kind of everything else she experiments with is always feels like just a phase. So when she's yeah. throwing herself into all of this African stuff, it, it's all very much feeling like a, the, the latest fad kind of expression that she, she's going through. So it, it plays for a little bit of kind of comedic stuff in the film, but also really gives us some more insight on this character who is just feeling a little bit lost and, you know, that's something I could relate to, somebody who's trying different things. I think, you know, when I start, graduated high school and started college, I didn't really have any clue what I was going to do. So I was just doing kind of your general ed classes, your math and your science and the basic things that you take. Because And I did, had no major because I had no idea what I wanted to do. I took sewing classes because I thought maybe I wanted to be a fashion designer because that was I was always drawing fashions, you know, when, growing up and, and designing clothes. But then I couldn't sew. So then I was, you know, very discouraged with that. In high school, I, you know, played in orchestra, but I never really got good enough to kind of continue doing that. So I, I very much uh, felt her, you know, wanting to express herself in some way and find something she could be passionate about, but those things not quite working out for her. Um, so that was something I kind of related to. And so uh, when people were kind of just writing it off and, and uh, kind of laughing at her and, uh, and all of that, I was, I was very much feeling, <laughs> feeling her, her, uh, um, you know, struggle with, with that. You know, everyone yeah. kind of has their own personal struggle that they're dealing with. And hers is just very much not being able to find herself. And I think that's why she gra uh, gravitates to uh, Mr. Asagai. Because, uh, yeah. you know, she she even tells him that she's kind of lost and she doesn't know who she is. And asks him kind of to help her kind of find yeah. this identity. Because she sees him as somebody who purely knows who he is and knows what he's passionate about and believes in something. And she doesn't have that so she kind of you know seeks him out to help her figure that out for herself and instead of kind of finding her own thing she just ends up latching onto his thing so yeah and it is it is that flightiness and immaturity to a degree yeah. that is the the kind of negative component of, of her character but yeah very necessary one that's what makes her a fully fledged human being much like yeah. Walter Lee's selfish obsession with his own money and his own dream as opposed to thinking about anybody else at all yeah. at any time is his real negative. I mean, he does take it way too far in a, in a real crux moment at the end of the movie. And as we've talked about, kind of Ruby D. Ruth is a little bit kind of more pure. I just think she's but maybe she's she maybe doesn't take care of herself yes she and she does she doesn't she doesn't speak up for herself she doesn't say no. what she really feels about things um she's very kind of just dismissive because of her own frustrations so you know she won't take care of herself and she doesn't have any patience for you know hearing anybody else's problems because she knows she's dealing with her own problems herself yeah. 
and that's just too much for her so when anyone else comes to her with any of their problems she is not equipped because she's not taking care of herself first if she took care of herself first told people how she genuinely felt felt about things you know had a, a a real perspective on what she needs to make herself happy and express that instead of keeping it in then she could be a better kind of uh advocate for everyone else in her family but because she takes on so much to herself and doesn't really express that or talk about it or say anything she keeps everything all bottled up yeah she's very much it makes her almost useless to the people around her because she she just takes on so much on herself without really kind of knowing that she has support or help so yeah which obviously is the is the more negative aspect to her human character but works in fleshing her out i mean lena though as as the matriarch as the head of the household as the one who the story of the movie and to move us on slightly when they end up getting the life insurance check i mean she is waxing lyrical about how great the father was walter senior and he was you know called walter and walter is a walter sydney poitier he's named after obviously um talking about how this is you know this this money is his legacy let's do what he would want to do she's a very i I enjoy the way she speaks claudia mcneil i think i think she's got quite a grandstanding personality yeah and I, i i always appreciate that in any actor in any person that has this very distinguished way of speaking i think she she's got a she's a great orator i think (laughs) which is probably why you know she she did well on the stage strangely enough i actually read a little bit about how she and sydney poitier really didn't like each other oh goodness okay i really like really didn't get on on stage or on set of this movie um but how that perhaps you know improved their own characterizations against each other because they do butt heads an awful lot yes um i think later on i I read somewhere maybe it was in a a book that sydney wrote how he said that he believed she hated him oh my god it was was perhaps quite intense but no i think she is really stunning in this movie i mean she is where an awful lot of the really teary-eyed emotion comes into this movie for me because her absolute unabashed totally unconditional love for her family yet constant you know not condemning that's the wrong word constant kind of thinking about how she doesn't understand them she's got no idea who her children are there's there's berating that goes on yet there's a real warmth at times she's not all over the place as a person she's just fully fleshed like the rest of them are Mm -hmm. but i think there's a certain 
And perhaps it's because she she's obviously aware of her advancing years in the movie. She's aware of her role as the matriarch, as the head of this family, the importance that that takes on. There's a weight to her. There's yeah. a real, real weight to her in everything she does. And I was absolutely captivated by her as a character, constantly selfless at times, absolutely selfless at times, but just devastating in what she's saying at times to her family, whether it is really kind of going in on them, like when she slaps beneath her for just yeah. not wanting to be religious anymore. It's it's hard stuff yes. to watch. Yeah. Um, it's not, I'm not saying, you know, A Raisin in the Sun, I don't think is a bleak movie. I just think it's a gritty movie. It's a yes. realistic, yeah. it's a down-to-earth movie. And it will take you on that very intense emotional journey, but not make you despair ever yeah. at the end. You know, you don't leave watching this movie going, Oh, I never want to watch that again. I right? left watching this yeah. movie going, that took an awful lot out of me. Wow, what a movie. That's same. what I felt. 100% same. You yes. know? Yeah. I love it. I love it when what is ultimately heavy drama can do that rather than just make you feel miserable and sad yes. and despair and, and never and make ever you want feel to watch like exactly yes and and this movie could have taken that turn this story could have taken that turn where it's just so bleak that you never really want to watch it again but i would welcome you know revisiting this film uh just because of the performances and the kind of struggles these people go through and the ultimate uh kind of message that they come to that works for them their family and and generally uh a great message for what black people were struggling with in this era this this proud kind of moment that we get to by the end of this film um ultimately well, let's talk about this then let's talk about yes. this because mm -hmm. she you know, she uses she uses some of the money that she gets from the insurance to buy a house yeah in this all white neighborhood yeah she doesn't at first reveal is an all white neighborhood because she doesn't she 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 comes back from buying the house into the apartment, yeah. kind of being a bit secretive as to where exactly it is. She's saying things like, "Oh well, you know, I just went. It's a it's a lovely little house. It's got a nice garden. Oh, a garden. Yeah, I've always got, wanted a for garden. Travis, the son, to play her grandson. Um, you yes. know, it's got a nice big basement. It's got three bedrooms, lots of room to run around. Nice big kitchen. Like she's she's really talking. And everybody's going up. okay." Yeah. Where, where where is it? Where is it? Where is it? I forget the exact location as to exactly what she says, but it basically the important thing is that it's a very white neighborhood. Yeah. So when she and says the address, they're all very much like, "Oh no." The, are you, you know, sure? It, like, are you sure we yeah. can go there? Well, why can't we go there? Let's go there. You know, yeah, it's, it's a house. It's the best house I could find. Let's just go there. Yeah, it's the best house that I could afford, and you know, let, let's just see what. But like, I immediately am, and 
kind of worried for them. I'm worried for little Travis, you know, trying to go to school in a place like that, you know, because I, I know what it was when black people would move into these white neighborhoods and them simply existing was, you know, riots outside their house and people vandalizing things and throwing things at them and protests and all of this just for them living there, not doing anything, not hurting anybody, but, you know, just the height of, of, racism and misunderstanding and and racial tensions and all of that. So I'm immediately like feeling stressed out. (laughs) You know, I can't a hundred percent as a black person knowing history be happy for this decision. Like I'm happy, you know, when she's first talking about it and explaining, I'm excited for them, you know, because you see, you see Ruby D's shoulders drop. You see her just mm-hmm. kind of be washed over with the sense of relief. Um, and then when she says, you know, I immediately kind of know what this means. But they're all trying to be very optimistic about it because it's it's them getting out of this place. It's them, you yeah. know, elevating. You know, they're they they're still willing to work hard um, because she says, you know, I used like most of the money for the house. And if we all pitch in and just all work, you know, we can pay to, to you know, to keep this house. We can pay the rest of it off, yeah. Yes. So, you know, the, their work, and, and, you know, I think Ruby D says a line, you know, we've worked so much to pay for this shitty little apartment that we could have bought in four houses up at this point. So, you know, at least they're working towards something. They're working to have a better life. And so that is uh, the contentment that comes with the situation, even though there is this kind of unknown of what it's going to be like living amongst all of these white people. So they're still very optimistic yeah. about it. But me, just as someone who knows history, is very scared, you know, and and, and I'm already kind of getting a little stressed, like, uh, well, I, kind of I mean, absolutely. thinking what it's going to be, you know. Absolutely. I mean, us, us watching this movie now, you know, is when such tensions have thankfully waned, you know, to, to, yeah. to a, a, a decent degree. Yes. Um, you know, imagine watching, watching this upon original production on the stage or this original run of the movie it must feel so present. It must feel so personal and yeah. absolutely something that you recognize in that world. I think we what can this look means. back on it now. We can look back on it now uh, at a, with a historical context. Yes, we can look this... back on it now and understand mm-hmm. that danger, yeah. understand that fear, understand that concern and you know, that, that must have been felt. But what watching it then must have been staggering because it's staggering enough now. But the most positive scene in the entire movie, the scene that actually makes my heart fill with warmth is when they are first looking around this house. Yes. When they, um... when they all first go, it feels so unbelievably 
perfect. Like, oh God, is this where the movie's going to yes. end? Because I didn't and, and, know. Yes, and even and me, uh, you know, the tension I had when she said where she bought the house and this white area, you know, I'm feeling tense. But then seeing kind of the positivity that comes out of it, you know, they're they're going at the house looking around. They, you know, give the uh, Lena gifts because, you know, she bought this house for them. So, you know, she talked about growing a garden. So they give her some gardening tools. Um, and then her grandma. It was a rather like, humorous line <laughs> about um, a hat that little Travis. Yes, bought. Travis. Travis, you know, he said um, she he wanted to buy you something. He picked it out. We don't know what he got. And he gets her this <laughs> hat that he, you know, I see that the ladies in the gardening magazines wear hats like this. And I figured you needed a gardening hat. And so you just love, you know, his thought. But everyone's kind of teasing his choice of hat because it has all these fruits on it. Uh, you know, they make a joke about how it's uh, we're, we're trying to turn grandma into Mrs. Miniver, Miss Miniver, not Scarlet yes. O'Hara. O'Hara. Yes, a bit like, oh no, not Scarlet O'Hara for this old black lady. lady this won't yes. go down very no, well. No, no, but she's like, you know, very much like, oh no, it's perfect. And she puts it on, and it's a very, like, very loving scene. And it also comes after. Walter Lee not being happy about her buying this house because he wanted her to give him most of the money or whatever yeah. so that he could invest in his whole little uh, liquor license thing with his friends. So he's very frustrated uh, about her doing this. And then I think he ultimately kind of stops going to work and just spends all his days drinking because he's now feeling like his dream that he had with this now that the money has arrived is not going to happen. So yeah, without the, even the, knowing that he's yes, doing this. Yes. So the frustration he we have seen him have up to this point is turned up to another degree when he realizes, you know, she spent this money on something, you know, and he's not seeing the bigger picture of this something that she's done for them. He's just frustrated that he didn't get the money for what he wanted. So he's, you know, three days now in the bar drinking, not going to work, feeling stressed and all of this. So so ultimately Lena goes and she's like, um, where's that place that he goes every night? I'm going to go there. So she goes, finds him in the bar and and, and has this whole moment with him. Uh, this whole scene, though, the, yes. the set up to this whole scene, mm -hmm. the phone call that Ruby D gets from Poitier's employer yeah. to say, where is he? You know, if he doesn't show up tomorrow, he's not going to have a job anymore. Yeah. And the shock and devastation on her face, and she tells Lena, she tells his mother this, and it's this unspoken, storm to the wardrobe, put my hat on, get out the door, where yeah. is he? What's the place called? Right, I'm going. And this, this, this real, just total unspoken assurance that I'm going to go and get this job done. I love this from, from a yeah. matriarch mm -hmm. figure yes. in, a, yeah. in a family she in a means movie. means business. Yeah, it's so she great. She really, really means business. Her, her face of thunder. She. It, this is the very definition of somebody on the warpath. And I've always yes. loved that phrase and that concept. And this is just that to a T. It's perfect. She arrives at this bar. He is rock bottom at this point. Yeah. He is absolutely rock bottom, drinking himself into a stupor. And the understanding 
she shows to him yeah. in this particular scene is monumental when she could have perfectly justifiably beat him half to death there and then yeah she 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 has this understanding for him her motherly unconditional love kicks in and knows you know even when he messes up even when he's at his lowest you know i could wring his neck but it doesn't change the fact that i love him um and she explains this in a great scene later with uh benita who very much is frustrated with him when something does happen um and uh she tells her you know if you really loved your brother you would love him you know you you loved him and you were all you know great to him when things were going great and he, he was doing all the things that you liked but when he does something wrong and you say you don't love him anymore then you never loved him because yeah. real when love do you think when do you think people need loving the most the most yes and so her great and so you and you see her illustrate before she gives this great uh kind of monologue about unconditional love and loving somebody at their lowest means that you really love them she shows it she illustrates it in the scene she yeah. sees he's broken she sees he needs something so she gives him the rest of the money that was left over from her buying the house it's like 65 100 dollars she tells him, "Put, I'm giving you the rest of this money. Put three thousand in the bank for Benita's school, and the rest is yours to do with what you want. You can put it in a bank account, and I, I will let you. You know, you can now be the man of this family, the head of this family, and do with it what you want. You know, live your dream if 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 this money can give you that." And she gives him this opportunity. And then you see in the days, you know, following, he's a, a lighter. He, he, you know, him and Ruby D, who have felt like they've lost something. She even says that in their marriage and this, you know, yeah. uh, kind of antagonistic relationship they have. They are are very kind of loving and and happy and and doing well. And he's getting along with his sister. And he and you know, this is like around the time they go actually look at the house and and we see this you know lighter excited happy version of him so we're thinking oh my gosh everything's going good the tension i had about them moving into this neighborhood has you know dissipated i'm excited for them they're packing up um and then we've also not even mentioned the plot point that uh, ruth is pregnant oh yes again. yes and, and you know when she first got this news it was very uh hard because you know we talked about ruth's character being very much keeping things to herself and being stressed and not taking care of herself and and not happy with uh their station in life and so she is contemplating having an abortion because i want to say how how very well they depict the topic of abortion in this movie yes yeah because like, not not outright no we, we still struggle in the early 60s to outright say to talk about it things. yes but they like, talk about it in terms of you know getting rid of the quote-unquote problem and you know you won't have yeah. to deal with it anymore and kind of language like that and it the fact still that she feels even... quite frankly discussed yes and you, you know, you feel kind of, you, you understand her reasoning for doing it because she's in this terrible relationship with her husband. They're living in this tuna can of an apartment. Um, 
and so you understand all her feelings and and the fact that we see her not really taking care of herself and and you know working herself sick and all of this so uh it very much brings a lot of strife and then with the house you know that has brought everyone kind of back to life and lena giving walter this money and trusting him to kind of now take over being head of the family so things are looking really good for everybody yes it is in a positive little yeah. span is where they get a visit by yes. a, a, i mean to call him a gentleman is to do him a service he may not necessarily yes. deserve. Um, a weasel, we'll call yes. him. A piglet. We'll call him a, <laughs> a piglet. <laughs> happens to be the voice of piglet. It's yeah. John Fielder, or, or Fielder, however you pronounce his name. He's the one white man in the entire movie. Yes. Um, he, he was in 12 Angry Men as the weaselly juror. Yeah. yeah. Juror number two. I want to say jury Maybe. number two yeah. some, for some reason. Um, you'll recognize him. You know his voice. Yeah. He 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 um he's from the the, the whatever neighborhood they're going to improvement committee. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and and he he's there for a, a, a nice sit-down conversation with them about coming together as a community yes, and, and the problems the community may face. And it starts off really quite genial, really quite understanding, very, 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 like, pleasant, but very slowly becomes a little bit obvious as to actually what yes and and benita is the first one to kind of pick up on it and he's meandering around saying what he means to say and so i'm sitting there knowing why he's there immediately oh yeah no. i mean you all you all, you all <laughs> yes. know what he's there why he's there why he's kind of dancing around uh saying you know it outright after like the fourth time of him saying you people i'm very much you know kind of like why haven't they picked up on it but at this point i think benita's picked up on it she picks up a hammer that she was using to kind of nail a, a box yes. shut and just kind of like holds it in a very I frustrated way which i love yes. meanwhile um ruth and, and walter still kind of aren't there yet um and he kind of outright says, you know, this concern that the neighbors have for a black family moving into this neighborhood. And he's having a, a like a decent kind of pleasant conversation. How he's speaking with them. They are being just as eloquent and pleasant back to him, offering him something to drink. So you would think this, you know, false depiction that white people had of black people being you know thugs and this and that and whatever and, and, and you know here to rob you and all of these misconceptions built up around and, and falsities about black people in this era there's quite He's a funny dry comment that ruby d makes when he leaves as well which we'll get to Yes, but the fact that like he's having this very civil conversation with him and it's not registering to him that these people are just like me. You know, these people can carry on a, a very civil, kind conversation. They offered me something to drink. They're very kind. They offered me a seat like they, they're not they're not these animals that we have been led to believe they are. He's seeing he's it the flat first. out stupidity of, of yes. this man and people that think like him. <laughs> exactly. But he's seeing it firsthand. That these people are just like anybody else. 
but he's still of the notion that he has to tell them that we don't want you in this neighborhood. No, despite how nice he says it, that is what he tells them. To the point oh, yeah, where 100%. the whole neighborhood has raised what they paid for the house plus more just so they don't move in there. Yeah, to buy the house back yeah. off them so somebody they want can come. What what a yeah. what a ridiculous concept. Yes. But... And so once they kind of catch on, they they rightfully tell him to leave. And, no, so... and when Sidney Poitier stands up and dominates himself over you and says, yes. "Get out of my house," you realize, means... okay, yes, and and you see him, you see the kind of that this is the moment where he took his mother's words to be the head of the family, and he becomes oh, yeah. the head of the family, and it's a beautiful moment. So they're still feeling good about their move, their decision. They kind of tell Lena what has happened, and she feels a little bit bad that she kind of put them in this situation, but they're all kind of on board that they're going to stick with it and, and, and do what they need to do. Then. Yeah. Oh, oh, the well, Ruby I, <laughs> I, yes. I just liked the little comment that she made um, after John Fielder had, had left or however you say his last name. Um, when, when he, he is kind of outright saying upon leaving, he says, well, I hope you know what you people are doing. Yeah. Um, yeah. As threatening them, threatening them yes. because they are going to continue to move in to the house they have just bought. But it's as threatening as such a minuscule weasel figure can be. I mean, it's phenomenal casting, really, isn't yeah. it? It's yeah. absolutely ideal yes. casting for Little, this particular meek, quiet role. piglet. <laughs> yes. You know, saying but, these terrible things under the guise of just, you know, cordial. Conversation. Yeah, I, I think Benita comes out with the question of, I mean, what do they, what do they think we're going to do? We're going to be there, and we're going to try and be good neighbors. What do they think we're going to do? Yeah. And Walter Lee says something like, "Oh, you know, we're we're going to beat everybody up." And Ruby T just says, "Oh, yeah, you know, oh, Walter Walter Lee's going to take all the women." <laughs> things like that and yeah. it's, it's, it yeah. was very dry I yes appreciated... and even when they're yeah the humor they even have when they're telling lena about it and they're just kind of being this sarcastic the welcoming committee came and they told us they're yes. so excited to have us there and just the sarcasm in this moment but you're so proud of this family for you know sticking with what they decide to do uh despite kind of the antagonistic uh, nature that is going to be waiting for them when they get there. Uh, yeah, it's and, all this positivity, it it's all this pridefulness. Yes, until that, that is, <laughs> yes, that is whipped right out from underneath you. Yes, like when a horrible magician's yeah. tablecloth that hasn't gone very well. <laughs> yes, when we learn what Walter ultimately did with that money given to him by his mother, uh, his uh, business partner friend shows up to tell him what happened with them going to another city to get a liquor license. And I'd like to point out one of his business partner's friends is named Bobo. Never trust a man called Bobo. Bobo. <laughs> yes. Uh, and ultimately the man shows up. I'm like, why the, 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 the lack of perception from Sydney Poitier in this right. movie is because like, I'm immediately, and like even when Benita read the the neighborhood man and his motivations for coming there, it, it's pretty obvious what is happening. 
Now his friend shows up looking nervous and scared and, you know, almost beads of sweat you can see pooling on his forehead. And Sidney Poitier just very excitedly still asking him, so what happened? Did we get the license? What's going on? And like, you're not seeing that this man is in distress right now in front of you. And the friend ultimately tells him that their third business partner, who he gave his own money to, along with Sidney Poitier's money to, has never showed up at the train station for them to go to the other city to, to get the liquor licenses. Um, let, he let's, waited there. Let, and let's say this this was probably about $10,000 in hard cash. Yes. This third businessman, Willie, who in one scene that he actually shows up in, in the movie is played by Roy Glenn, who plays who played his father dad in Guess Who's in Coming, Guess to, coming dinner. to Dinner. Yeah, I think they're only like 10 years yeah. apart in age or, or so. Um, like 13 years apart because I looked I'm like how much older is he than him and yeah it's only like yeah. 13 years or something like that um, I think that's something that's that's similar to Claudia McNeil in this movie I think there's only 10 years between her and Sydney yes Um, and ultimately Willie has run off with both the friend's money and uh, and Walter's money and is Willie so, the real villain of this movie, or is he is he actually Sydney? It it is Sydney because what he ultimately did, he didn't give Willie just the three thousand dollars left to him by his mother. Um, no, he 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 didn't even go to the bank, so he didn't put any of the three thousand dollars aside for beneath the school. He didn't put his three thirty five hundred dollars in an account for himself and or just give the thirty five hundred dollars to Willie. He gave Willie the whole sixty five hundred dollars, all of the money they had left, all of the money of his father's uh, uh, insurance money and lost all of the rest of the money the family had. It, it's all of a sudden completely devastating. Yes. Your heart just drops to the floor. Yeah. When all this comes out and it's revealed, it drops to the floor, much like Sidney Poitier himself drops to the floor in, yeah. in, in positions I never ever want to see Sidney Poitier in again. Yes, where he looks and he's so... just shouting Willie, Willie, <laughs> like oh he is, no, yes. he yeah. is just a, a, a shell of a man mm -hmm. at this point, isn't he? Broken. He is so broken completely broken. They're all at this point completely broken by this and him just at his mother's feet while she's in floods of tears despairing herself no and she like that. lifts her hands while he's on his knees almost to just bash down on him and right. she has to, like she has to look up and ask the lord and ask her husband's spirit to to, to contain her yeah, it's it's so heavy. It's yeah. so horrible. You're sat there watching it with your hand over your face going, oh, no. No. This yeah. is absolutely devastating. And it is. They are distraught. And it, it does feel a real sudden punch as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. in, in terms of the way the story is paced, it feels like it's coming a little bit towards an end. They're going to move in. There might be a bit of tension, but they're going to stick it out. But no, you get this extra little bit of he's lost all the money. They might have to stay in this 
dreadful yes, little Ruth, apartment. Ruth is no. Ruth is like no. So they they say, well, let's cancel the movers because we'll have to pay them if they show up, and you know, let's start unpacking things. And Ruth is like, no. She's still wrapping up plates. She's still taking pictures off walls. No, we are getting out of this place. We got to keep packing. We got to keep moving. We're getting out of here. I will work twenty hours a day every single day. Yeah. to afford the, that house. We are not staying here. But Lena, even Lena, just trying to, you know, I'd be thinking about it. I saw this old, you know, um, dresser down the road. We could get it and paint it and put new handles on and put it over there. You know, we could set up a nice little area for the baby right over here. You know, we freshen can up, up the place. We can freshen up this place. We can make it work. And her just trying to be positive and Ruth just like looking like she got punched in the face and just determined. But they are, they're, they're, they're all beside all themselves. Down. Yeah. And beneath but us, is, knowing her school money is gone as well. Yes. It, they're, they're at, and this is where the great monologue from Lena comes in yeah. about unconditional love for for Walter Lee that they all need to show once. Beneath has basically disowned him now at yes. this point. Well, and, and also, well, I think what really does it is because he ultimately caves in and decides to call the, the neighborhood oh, yes. man. It gets worse. And to and and take his offer of them buying the house from them and plus the extra money, and you don't really fault him. Almost you you understand you like you you hate that he would submit to this pressure, you know. And I, I love that he's like I called the man, <laughs> so you know the man <laughs> like and how he talks about every white man as the man and so you just know immediately who he's talking about and so you know he admits i called the man he's coming he's gonna write us a check and we're gonna get that extra money and because you know that's what we gotta do and so the fact that he's submitting to the demands of these white people that all of the pride that they had in that moment of telling him to leave now they're they're you know uh submitting to what these awful white people want. And, and, and you understand it and you hate that they have to go there, but you understand like, would I do the same thing? I mean, you think about them going there and little Travis trying to go to school and, and getting discriminated against, yeah. people, you know, throwing things at their house and protesting outside. And, you know, and you think about, is it worth, is your pride, is this greater cause of, of you know equality worth you know the strife of this situation on top of all the strife we've seen you go through throughout the course of this film and so you you're having these kind of mental quandaries going around in your head in the moment that you find out he's decided to call this man and, and take the money from him um but the rest of the family is very much still proud and are upset that he's done this and so that's when Benita is is rightfully done with him and when Lena gives the speech about unconditional love and loving somebody at their lowest. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I can't say it any better than that. My, my feelings echo yours <laughs> entirely in this particular scene. It encapsulates Walter Lee's character throughout the movie perfectly because you hate what he's doing, yet you understand what he's doing. It, and it, it's this weird mesh and yeah. matchup of both of those things at exactly the same time, but it takes on this added significance yeah. of 
the self pride angle, the the racial pride, the bigger cause angle, of of civil rights, cause. and yeah. them just being a small part of moving that forward, you know, without yeah. realizing it even. And so uh, the man shows up, and before he can even, he's trying to speak and tell him he's gonna you know write the check and all of this and paperwork to to get the house back from them. And Sydney is, is is trying to just explain to him that we're like everyone else. And he's like, you know, I was a chauffeur for most of my life, you know, driving people around and doing my job. You know, this is my sister. She's going to be a doctor. And we're really proud of that. And I like I started tearing up just the fact that, like, we see Flighty Benita and people kind of laughing at, you know, the things that she wants to do with her life. But her being a doctor hasn't... You know, is a is a point of pride, particularly for a black woman wanting to do something like this, and and it's the fact that it's the one thing she's stuck with. Um, yeah, this whole other... speech. Yes, and this he just... whole speech of him being, we are plain people, and yes. going through each one of them, going through their father, whose spiritual presence has commanded yes, the yeah. entire movie. So, call, you know explaining how he was a plain person this is my son the way he says this is yes. my son good lord oh, yes, Sydney, could yes. you be more emotional yes, if you want he goes to be through each member of his family and just talking how they're just plain everyday people they're not out to do anything that you think they're going to do you have these preconceived notions about black people but we are just people trying to survive living our lives working hard trying to build a better life for and and then he ends on his son you know this is my son and it's heartbreaking him just trying to show this ignorant man that we are just people and you and and ultimately then saying you know we're, we're moving into our house we're not selling our house to you i just wanted you to Get be out. here <laughs> i just wanted to come you to come here all this way to tell you that we are staying in our house and that we are just like everyone else. We are just people. Yeah. And sends him on his way. And he even makes one final plea to Lena as the the actual buyer of the yeah. house, the mm -hmm. head of the household. And she doesn't even look at him. She's yeah. got streaks of tears Appears in her eyes at this, yeah. at this phenomenal speech that Walter Lee has just given. And she just says, my son's the head of the house now. You heard him. I think you should leave. Yes. And Sidney Poitier does his old get out speech again. Yeah. And uh, and and he gets out. And it, it, you're all of a sudden you you feel you feel fulfilled all of a sudden. Yeah. You mm -hmm. feel like they are the closest they've ever been yes. as a family unit. Yes. All of a sudden when they shove the dude out, yeah. continue packing up, the removal men arrive, and they leave forever. No more yeah. cramped, tiny Chicago yes. apartment. and you're not thinking about, because, you know, when she first said where the house was and all of that, and I'm having this uncertain feeling for them and this stressful feeling of what, what future is going to look like for them. I'm not even thinking about that in this moment. No. I'm not thinking about the hard road it's going to be living in this white neighborhood. I'm just so enveloped 
in the pride of these people, in the courage of these people, in the closeness that they now have after seeing them kind of beat up on each other the whole movie, that they're all on the board with each other, that they're taking this leap together and um, doing it for the generations of their family, doing it for the, you know, Lena's husband who's gone, um, doing it for, uh, you know, a greater cause of, you know, equality and, and showing people that they're just like everyone else. And you're not thinking about what the future is going to look like. You're just in them in this moment of doing yeah. this very brave, strong, beautiful, connected, loving thing. And that's what they leave you with. And it's just yeah. so good. It really is the pride you feel for mm -hmm. them yeah. equates to the pride they feel for each other and what they've just done yeah. at this particular point. It's such a impressively poignant message yeah. <laughs> of, a, of a movie. It's such an impressive point to end this movie on. I mean, this it's not recency it's 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 somewhat recency bias talking when i say that this is perhaps sydney's best performance that i've yeah. seen yes um but i really do think it is whether i'm calling it my favorite sydney poitier well <laughs> well i mean we still would be we, a bold statement yes we i think we did allude on the Wednesday show that this was one of two very big Sydney films we hadn't seen or discussed oh, yes, on yes, the yes. show. So there is the one that he did actually win his Oscar for that we have not seen. So, but up to everything we've seen uncovered on this show, I feel like I agree. This is the best performance. So I can't say it's the best until we talk lilies of the field one day, but, uh, well, that one day may not be too far off. Ma yeah, mayton it. That's not a word. Mightn <laughs> not it. That, however, you're supposed to say that in actual yeah. English. Um, but I can't let recency bias claim, you know, have this movie yeah. claim any sort of title yet. Ask me in six months. Okay. I know that's quite a long time to wait. And I don't need that long, you know, to sit with a raisin in the sun to yeah. make me fully realize, you know, how great it is. But I think it's always safer if you're asking someone the favorite of something, ask them at a completely random time when they haven't yeah. just watched something, <laughs> yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's perhaps better to do that. But my God, was this movie great? Yes. Unbelievably so. Yeah. I think this has been a great episode. Yes. It's a wonderful podcast. A long episode. I don't know that we've ever kind of uh, gone this long for a while in our discussion. Oh, we, we have. In fact, I think we went this long on Spellbound a couple oh. of weeks ago. So, <laughs> true, true. weirdly enough, not yes. that that's got anything to I do mean, with a raisin in the sun. I, I, feel I, feel like, like... I feel like these longer episodes just. It, they, they mean we have more to say. And if we have more to say, there's a reason for that. Yes, there's a quality and, to the movie. There's know, layers to these movies. Bias or not, I, like to get into. I feel like Gregory and Sydney are kind of our faiths, I'd have to say. <laughs> maybe, maybe. You know, I do, I do, I do admittedly, as far as, the, as far as the men go, as far as the men go, I think we do have our favorite women as well. Yes. <laughs> um, but as, as far as the men go, 
perhaps, but I, I, I would also throw Mr. Last Week in there as well. Yeah, he, he's really from, good. from my personal point. Yes. I think. I, think I mean, he made I'm... my he made my classics crush list last week. So he, he did he with did. last week's movie um... specifically. So yes, we do have our faves. So I feel like we tend to wax a little more poetic and long about them than than why other... not. I don't know. Yeah, this is great. So I'm glad. I'm Why glad not? we I'm glad we found so much to, to love and discuss and and break down about this movie for yeah. sure. And so 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 we should, Janine. It's our yes. show. We can do what we yes. want. <laughs> That's the point. Nobody's here yeah. to tell us what, what <laughs> exactly. to do. We have our own pride in, in our show and our yes. home that this show is. <laughs> Let's uh, let's show it by talking a little bit longer than we yes. perhaps normally do about movies that absolutely deserve it. But what a great episode we have had of It's a Wonderful Podcast today, talking 1961's A Raisin in the Sun with Sidney Poitier, Claudia McNeil, Ruby D, and Diana Sands, based on, of course, that original Lorraine Hansbury Broadway play. It closes out Sydney Poitier week. By all means, go and check out the episode of Morgan Hasn't Seen. We talked Sneakers from 1992 on Wednesday. Both episodes in Sydney Poitier week. Morgan Hasn't Seen and It's a Wonderful Podcast, the main show you can find every week on the It's a Wonderful Podcast feed. Subscribe wherever you do get your podcasts, of course. Leave those ratings, those reviews, answer the questions that we put on Spotify. If you are over there, we love getting people's responses to those. It's very nice. And of course, subscribe and ding the notification bell on the It's a Wonderful Podcast YouTube channel as well for all the videos we put over there. Have plenty more things coming on the It's a Wonderful Podcast YouTube channel. Regular stuff at the moment. It's nice. I'm enjoying it. I'm trying new yeah. things <laughs> this year over on the YouTube channel. It's exciting. Yeah. We spoke about the Patreon and the donation links before. You can, of course, also find us on social media, on Twitter, at It's a Wonderful One. Find me on Twitter, at The Purple Dawn, with a three instead of the E in there, because, Janine... Three is a magic number. On Instagram, TikTok, and threads, at The Purple Dawn, all your proud stuff is where <laughs> you can find me at janine devine underscore on twitter janine devine on instagram TikTok, and threads if you want to get any merch for any of our shows just check the description for the link or search it's a wonderful podcast on teespring.com and if you want to purchase any of my art and print form you can find that at my big cartel shop g9design.bigcartel.com and please don't ask me to do another terrible sydney poitier impression because it was I will, so bad i, I will not it be doing that so bad on wednesday show <laughs> I was just about to say we cannot possibly end today's great episode. One of my favourite episodes in recent memory, I must say, of the main <laughs> show. With such a dismal impression. So, Janine, please, just, I, I don't know, a proud voice? If that works? Do whatever you want. Three, two, one. Bye. Bye.